Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you so much for uh, for being here today. It's always an honor uh, to see how many of you decide to spend your Sunday mornings with us. Uh, really, is a cool thing to see. And thank you for joining us online. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to meet me yet, my name's David, and I'm on staff here. And uh, today I get to uh, continue our series uh, that we're call, calling Equipped, where we're looking at the different spiritual disciplines and really seeing how not really we're not earning our salvation, but how we can work our faith out into every area of our life uh, so that it actually changes our lives. And uh, we're right now in a, in a section of our series uh, where we're looking at prayer. And we looked at it for a couple weeks. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Ryan talked in general about prayer. Uh, and then now we're looking at how prayer can really help us work through different uh, experiences we have in life, different difficulties we face. And last week we looked at helplessness. And uh, this week we get to look at something that uh, I'm pretty excited to look at because uh, I don't think we do a great job of, of dealing with it in the church in particular. And uh, today we get to look at doubt. And we get to look at how uh, prayer can really help us handle doubt and work through our doubt. And um, doubt's kind of an interesting thing uh, because it's not all bad. You know, if I, was to, if I was to stand up here and say, you know, I had a new revelation from God, you all need to start worshiping me now. You know, you should, you should doubt that. That would be a good thing to doubt. Um, but that's not the kind of doubt we're talking about today. Um, what we're going to talk about uh, is a little more significant than that. It's the kind of doubt that, uh, especially in the church world, uh, we're often ashamed about or scared to share with other people, or feel extremely guilty about, uh, because it's a doubt that really has us questioning really our core beliefs about reality, you know, about who am I? Who is God? Is he really, does he really exist? Is he really good? You know, or maybe doubts like, am I really a Christian, or do I even want to be a Christian? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. And even though we all experience doubt, I think we all experience it at different times and in different ways, but we all go through something like this in different, maybe different varying degrees. Um, but even though we all experience it, uh, sometimes it seem like, seems like any sense of uncertainty, you know, in the church showing any sense of uncertainty about what you believe is like the cardinal sin. And some, maybe you've experienced that where sometimes in the church we just... You know, we shame people or we feel we get angry at people or there's, you know, questions aren't really welcome there. And um, I don't know where we got that from, but it wasn't from this book and it wasn't from God's example. And there's actually some really cool examples of, of how God uh, patiently and lovingly um, really loves doubters, loves skeptics. And uh, probably, probably the most famous one or one of the most famous ones, one of my favorite ones, is Thomas. And, uh, you know, he's the guy who is known as Thomas the Doubter. You know, poor guy got labeled as the Doubter. You know, he probably would have loved a name like Thomas the Thinker. You know, Thomas the Not-So-Easily-Tricked. He probably fought for that, but he failed. He's known as the Doubter. Uh, We know him as that today. But the way he got that title, which maybe you know this, maybe you don't, uh, the way he got that title was that um, after Jesus was crucified, the disciples, which Thomas was one of them, uh, they really had no idea what to do. They're kind of holed up in a house, and they were like, what are we going to do? But then a few days later, a few of his friends start telling him that Jesus is back. They start saying, hey, Jesus resurrected. He's back from the dead. And, you know, Thomas wasn't there when they saw him, so his response is honestly pretty reasonable. Uh, He didn't believe them that a dead guy was back. And he said, hey, unless I can stick my fingers in the holes in his hands, and unless I can put my hand in his side, then I will never believe this is one of Jesus' disciples, you know, the people who knew him best, walked around with him while he was here, and that's his doubt he had. He said, I'll never believe unless I can do these things. And lo and behold, a few days later, Jesus shows up while Thomas is there, and he looks at Thomas, and he says, take your fingers, look at my hands. And he says, take your hand, put it in my side. And he tells Thomas, he says, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. And I think what's so incredible about that 
is that Jesus could have dealt with Thomas in like a million different ways. You know, he could have scolded him, he could have chided him, he could have just left him in his doubt forever, but that's not what he did. He gently met him exactly where he was, he even met his criteria, and then he called him to believe the truth. And I think that's really just an important place to start at today. You know, is, is Jesus was, he didn't shame him, didn't guilt him, but he also didn't leave him in his doubt. He pointed him to truth and said, hey, doubter, hey, skeptic, here's the real truth, here's reality, I am alive. And, and the reason I wanted to start here before even getting into any points or anything today is maybe you're listening and you're really wrestling with some doubts right now. Or maybe you're still kind of skeptical about this Jesus guy. You're kind of giving him a chance, but you don't really know where you stand with him. I just want to say I'm so glad you're here today. Like, I'm really glad that you're listening. For whatever reason you're listening, I'm really glad you are. Because God loves doubters. He loves skeptics like me and like you and like Thomas. And he has gone and he'll continue to go to great lengths to meet us exactly where we are and to call us to believe the truth. And you might not have the exact same experience as Thomas. You probably won't have the exact same experience as Thomas. You won't have, might not have your, your questions answered that quickly, but you can meet the same Jesus that Thomas met. And one day, every single one of us is going to see with our own eyes that Jesus is, in fact, alive. So I wanted to start with that, but I mean, I'm glad, glad we get to talk about doubt today. Again, I think that's just healthy as a church. Even if I don't have any really cool one-liners for you today, I think it's good that we're talking about doubt publicly. So at least that's a win. Um, but to talk about doubt, we're going to be in Psalm 73, and we're going to be looking at a guy named Asaph. And uh, Asaph was a spiritual leader of, uh, in, the, in the country of Israel. He was kind of like the equivalent of like a worship director. Um, but what we get to see in Psalm 73 we get to see this spiritual leader retroactively describing a time when he really wrestled with some doubts. Again, just showing that anyone can go through this. Everyone does go through this. Even the spiritual leader, Asaph, went through this. And he's, what's cool about this psalm is he wrote it after he'd come through the other side. So, you know, he made it, excuse me, he made it through. So we should pay attention. And what we're going to look at is kind of what doubt is, where it comes from, and then we're going to look at three practical things that we can learn from Asaph, kind of as a roadmap for us, and how to deal with our doubt. So I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to read Psalm 73. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's kind of a longer psalm, so bear with me, but I think if you pay attention, you'll see it's pretty relatable, the kind of concerns that he has and the kinds of doubts that he's wrestling with. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. It's Psalm 73. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But, as for me... My feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock, and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase in their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things out loud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. 
When I became embittered and my inmost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. So to start off today, again, we're going to look at just briefly, this is a big topic, we could talk longer than just one teaching on it, but we'll look briefly at kind of where doubt comes from, kind of what it is. And uh, to do that, I want to look at the beginning again of um, chapter 73, where we see Asaph describe his doubt. He said in verses 1 through 3, he said, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart, but as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So whenever you look at what he's talking about here, he's saying his feet almost slipped. Really, all through the Bible, uh, life is described as a path or as a way. So when he's saying that his feet almost slipped or he almost went astray, he's not just saying he almost made a small mistake or almost messed up. He's saying he almost lost his entire way of life. You know, he almost lost his identity. Specifically, he almost lost his faith. You know, he almost lost his faith that God is good. Because he's sitting here and he's seeing the wicked live, a, live lives that look really nice while following God really doesn't seem to be working out for him. Maybe you, can, maybe you can relate to that. But what's interesting to note is that what caused this doubt, it wasn't some new like riveting intellectual argument. It wasn't new information that he had. It was just something that he saw, something that he experienced. And you know, I think in, in our culture it's pretty easy. We, we want to be seen as rational people. I think that's good. You know, we want to use our minds. We want to be seen as reasonable. It's very popular, and it's very good to use your mind and to think. However, what that can lead us to do sometimes with our doubts is to view them as or set them up as purely intellectual problems, when in reality there's a whole lot of feelings and experience that go into doubt. So we'll say, hey, that's purely intellectual. That's just a big intellectual argument, but a lot more of it has to do with what we experience, because it was something that Asaph saw that made him have these doubts. It was something that he experienced. Again, it was a personal experience of really feeling let down. Like, hey, I see these wicked people succeeding. It was what was right in front of him. It was what was taking up this field of vision that led to this doubt. So, this kind of leads us to our first idea today, and then we'll have three ideas of how to deal with it. Um, just about where doubt comes from. It's that we experience doubt when what we see doesn't match up with what we know. That's kind of our first idea today. We experience doubt when what we see doesn't match up with what we know. So all through the Bible, um, I thought this was really interesting. I never really thought of this until, like, at least this clearly until I was researching this and heard some wiser preachers talking about this. But in the Bible, uh, faith is never opposed to reason or proof. So we're actually called to have a reasoned faith. It's never opposed to reason or proof. What faith is actually opposed to throughout the Bible is sight. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And in Hebrews 11:1 1, it says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And I heard a pastor describe this in a way I thought was really helpful. He said, faith isn't holding on to something in spite of the evidence. It's holding on to something in spite of appearances. So I don't know if that makes sense. Faith isn't holding on to something in spite of evidence, because we, we should have a reasoned faith. It's not opposed to evidence. It's holding on to something in spite of appearances. 
and we know that looks can be deceiving. I mean, we have so many little pithy sayings in our society, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, and looks can be deceiving, or things aren't always as they appear. And we know about editing software, and we know about Photoshop, and we, we know about special effects, and we know about optical illusions, but we still put so much weight in what we see and what's right in front of us, and we'll put more weight in that than even evidence and proof, because we'll just trust our eyes over everything else. But, again... This just means that we can have a faith that is reasoned because it's not opposed to reason as opposed to sight. But that doesn't mean we won't see things that, that can lead us to experience doubt. Like, again, Asaph saw something, let him into doubt. And if I had to guess, I'd probably I'd guess that you guys have probably experienced the exact same thing. I think this is such a relatable psalm. You know, you see things like evil and suffering in the world. That's exactly what Asaph dealt with. It's, it's so interesting to me. We can read ancient literature and see that his question that led to his doubt is the same one that so many of us have today. So you can see things in your life where you've probably stepped back and said, God, I cannot see your goodness in this. I can't see it. Or you can say, if God really existed, and he was really good, how could this happen? Those are some of the most common questions that people wrestle with today. And I think that um, one of the reasons we really need to pay attention to these is because you know, some of the main hurts that you see that lead people like away from the faith, away from God, are you know, personal tragedy or people in the church you know, treating them poorly. So basically personal tragedy or hurt that you received in the church. And what that shows us is that at the center of doubt is often a root that really is a real problem. And the reason I, the reason I think that's important to note before we move into kind of how to deal with doubt is because when we understand that at the root of doubt is often a real problem, it can help us when we deal with doubt to know, hey, we need to get down to the root of what's causing this. But it can also allow us to then listen with more empathy and more patience to people who might be very angry or have lots of doubts or just have genuine questions to understand, hey, there's a real problem, whether it's evil and injustice in the world, whether it's mistreatment in the church, there's a real problem at the root of that. It, that problem doesn't mean God doesn't exist. It doesn't automatically mean that God isn't good. That's a, it's a logical jump. But it does mean that we should... Take the time to listen. Take the time to figure out what's the root causing this doubt. And I feel like, I mean, I could talk about this for a while. It's obviously a huge topic, but I do want to move into well, how do we deal with doubt? You know, maybe we, maybe we agree, okay, we all experience this. Got it. It's whenever things we see don't match up with what we know. Cool. But what do we do? How do we actually handle it? And I'm going to look at three things that we see from Asaph's life that can kind of be a roadmap for us. You know, just a really simple, practical things we see from his experience that can help us as we deal with doubt. And the first one is our, our first idea of how to deal with doubt. Is number one, be honest. Pretty simple. Be honest. Asaph doesn't hold back in this psalm. You know, he's very clearly upset. He's saying, hey, God, I'm, it feels like following you has been kind of not worked out for me. So what's the deal with this? He's being very honest. And he's saying, I'm miserable. They look happy. Maybe I've messed up. And the reality is you should do the same thing. Like, you can be honest with God. Take your doubts, take your concerns, take your questions, and take them to God. You know, so often in the church we can suppress doubt. And actually, Barna research shows that one of the main reasons that young people leave the church is because the church seems unfriendly to people who express doubts. And that really shouldn't be the case. Like, I don't know if, if you've experienced that in your walk or if you've experienced that here, or maybe you've responded kind of in a way you wish you hadn't when someone asked a question. I think sometimes we can respond, you know, in, in anger, but really it's fear, kind of like when your kid's choking, and dads can probably relate to that. Uh, men respond 
to fear oftentimes in anger. Like if your kid's choking on food and you like get mad at them, like you're not actually mad at your kid. <laughs> you're just scared for them. So sometimes we respond that way. But, but really it shouldn't be the case that we suppress doubt in the church because honestly, if this isn't true, if Jesus isn't who he said he is, if he didn't resurrect, if his resurrection didn't happen, then I don't know about you, but I don't want to believe this. If it's not reality, I don't think you should want to believe this either. But since it is true, we can be honest about our doubts. We can search out the root of them. We can be honest about them in prayer. We can bring them to God. And all through the Bible, we see examples of really some audacious prayers. Um, Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel. He actually uh, accused God of tricking him. That's pretty pretty bold. Um, Moses asked God to kill him because God's plan wasn't really going that well, according to Moses' point of view. <laughs> David, who wrote a lot of the Psalms, you see him all the time saying, you know, how long are you going to uh, abandon me? You know, how, like, why can you, why do you keep forsaking me? When will you stop doing that? And then you see Paul in the New Testament talk about being perplexed, being confused, not understanding. So here's kind of a weird challenge for you. If you, if you're wrestling with doubts right now, or maybe you're not even a Christian, but you're listening right now, I would challenge you this week to actually go and tell God why you don't think he's real. Tell him what problems you have with him. Tell him why you don't think he's good. Take those things to God. Because in doing that, it's not an automatic, it's going to solve all your problems if you do that, but in doing that, you might be able to distill out of your doubt the, part, the root of it that's not a legitimate concern. Like we talked about, there's some legitimate concerns at the root of doubt, like evil and injustice or a million other reasons. But when you look at Asaph, as he's processing this through prayer, you see him say, I envy the arrogant. So he's able to see that even his, that his doubts have ulterior motives. He just wanted a better life. He wanted a life like they had. That's not really a you know, arousing intellectual reason to doubt, but that's part of it. It's in there. So whenever you take your doubts to God honestly, it can even help you begin to see, oh, there's, there's holes in my doubts too. There's some ulterior motives in there as well. And I think that, you know, again, as we kind of look at what ASAP's doing here, just kind of as a side note, you know, he's obviously processing this through prayer, but he also was honest about his doubt with other people. You know, he wrote this down. That's why we have... Psalm 73, he wrote down his experience with doubt so that we can learn from it, we could be encouraged by it, so you should do the same thing. Be honest about your doubts with the people around you. And I actually, uh, I tell people all this time who are the small group leaders here at our church, is that we should always be like open to questions and just like listen to them. And if it's the hardest question, if you don't have an answer to it, the answer, the, like the easiest answer, probably the best answer to a hard question is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but let's look into it together. Like, we shouldn't have this fear of the truth. And then genuinely look into it together. That should be, you know, something you actually follow up on. But basically, whenever you share your doubts with other people, you can encourage them. You might be surprised how encouraged they are when you tell them you have some questions, because they'll be like, oh, you too. I'm not the only one. But secondly, they can encourage you. They can speak truth into your life. They can give you a different perspective. So first thing, be honest. And in case... I wasn't even sure if I was going to mention this today, but I might as well. Uh, in case you think I'm just blowing steam, me and my wife, uh, Shana, we used to run the youth group here like years ago. David, who actually did announcements, was like 12 years old back then. Um, but we led it for a couple years, and um, whenever we were, were leading that, um, we didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> I was fresh out of college, and we were like, we want to help, and we just led a youth group. Um, but we were just volunteering doing that. Probably my favorite thing, or one of my favorite things we did when we were leading that is we had these really cheesy neon green shirts that we got for volunteering here one time, and it just said, ask me anything. And we would do question nights 
with the like with 12 to like 14 year olds. It wasn't even I don't think we had like seniors in high school. It was like 12 year olds, and we're sitting out in the garage over there in the parking lot, and we would sit there in a circle and we'd tell the kids, "What are your questions?" And you'd be amazed at the questions that 12 year olds have. And it'd be foolish to think that a lot of adults don't have those same questions, and they've never asked them, and they've never talked about them. So we legitimately need to do that. We didn't have all the answers. I was like 24 years old. <laughs> I was just sitting out there like, oh, good question. <laughs> just taking notes. And we would talk about them later, and we would share any insights we had, but we would keep a list. And the kids were so honest, and it led to just this, this robust discussion. And just to say, like, we really mean it. I hope if, you, if you're a skeptic, if you're here and you have questions or you're wrestling with your doubt and you're, you've been a Christian for a long time, like, I really hope that you know we mean it when we say, like, you're welcome here, and we're so glad you're here. We want to address your questions with you. And if you've been in the church for a long time and no one ever talks to you about their doubts, maybe this is a chance for you to reflect and say, am I approachable? Am I the kind of person that someone would actually ask their questions to? How do I respond? Have I responded in anger in the past when someone's asked me questions? Or with, you know, platitudes, like, just believe, you know, like, instead of actually addressing the questions with them. So that's the first one, be honest. Second thing we can do that we see from Asaph's life is to compare paths. That's number two. So be honest. Number two, compare paths. So in verse two, Asaph said, he said, my foot almost slipped. But then later in verse 18, when he's talking about the wicked, Asaph says, you put them in slippery places, you make them fall into ruin. And one thing that shows us is that no matter who you are, you're standing on something. Every single one of us is standing on something. We're betting our life on something. We've put our faith in something. There's there's really this weird idea out there nowadays that like people will be like, I just don't have any faith. I don't believe in anything. And that's actually a fallacy. I can't, that, that doesn't exist. No, there's no choice between belief and unbelief. The choice is between belief in God or belief in something else. And what you see Asaph doing is he's deliberately in prayer comparing the two. He's saying, I almost slipped, but they will fall. And you see him comparing where, their faith, where his faith is based on where theirs is. His faith is in the fact that God actually is good, and he is just. And one day he's going to make all things right, and then a life surrendered to God is best-case scenario. But then when you look at what, when he compares that to the, the faith statement, basically, of who he's describing as the wicked in this psalm, their statement is, how can God know? Does he know everything? So they're banking on the fact that God isn't all-powerful or all-knowing, and he isn't just, and he's not going to make all things right or exact justice ever. So either way, it's a statement of faith. They're saying, does God really know? And Asaph is saying, yeah, he does. So either way, there's faith there. So basically what we can see here as far as a practice for us to take with us is in prayer you can process other worldviews, other options. Whenever you start to have doubts, say, yeah, but where would I go otherwise? How do they handle that question? What are the other options out there? And actually do that. You know, hold, them, hold your doubts and hold other worldviews to the same scrutiny that you're holding God to. And I think that kind of as an example of this, again, it's, it makes sense because it's the one Asaph used and it's one of the bigger questions. As an example, take evil and injustice in the world. It's one of the biggest questions people have. And no matter who you are, I think you're going to have to wrestle with that, especially when you personally experience it in your life. So even if you believe in God, you're going to have to wrestle with that. However, if you were to say, I cannot believe in God because of evil and injustice in the world, you actually have just as big, if not a bigger problem when it comes to evil and injustice. 
because, and this is not the, the full argument, but just as a small piece of it, because even, so if you take God out of the picture, you actually have no basis for calling evil and injustice bad because the natural way of things is the strong eating the weak. And you actually don't have a good reason to help the poor and the weak and the needy because you'd actually be working against the process that you think advances our species. So all that to say, take the time to compare paths. And you can do that through praying and remembering what God says is true and then looking, and maybe you don't know yet, but look at what maybe your doubts are telling you is better and really seriously consider that and bring that before God as well. So really it boils down to, where's your faith? If you were to stop believing in God, where would you go otherwise? You know, how are you, hand, like, basically, where are you standing? Where are, you, where are your feet planted? And if it's not going to be planted on God, where are you putting them? Because they are still somewhere. So that's the second thing. First thing, be honest. Secondly, compare paths. And then the last one that we're going to look at, the third thing that we can see from Asaph's life that can be a help for us, is number three, experience God's presence. So hopefully you know this about me by now, but I think God is real. I believe God is real, and I believe he's good, and I believe he cares about me. I'm convinced. Doesn't mean I won't deal with doubts. Doesn't mean that certain experiences won't be able to rattle me, but I believe he's real. So the way you deal with doubts, if you doubt something that isn't true, is you stop believing the thing. However, if you doubt something that is true, you need to experience reality. You need to see reality for what it really is. And we see that is exactly what Asaph did in verses 16 and 17, when he said this. He said, when I tried to understand all this, all that he's been talking about, he said, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. So we talked about just a little briefly earlier, you know, we, we get into doubt through an experience, you know, through something we see that doesn't match up with what we know. So we're not going to get out of doubt simply by just sitting in a dark room thinking about it. And Asaph says, when I was just sitting there thinking about it, trying to understand it, it seemed hopeless. Again, I think that's a very natural tendency for us nowadays is to just intellectualize it and say, well, why can't I just figure this out? But he says, until he literally stood up and moved his body and went to the sanctuary, it was then... That he, where he would have experienced God's presence. It was then that he had clarity. It was then that he saw for the first time that, you know, the way that things presently appeared, that wasn't ultimate reality. It was then that he realized that God really is good and worth following. And really the whole idea behind that is just that since you don't get into doubts simply by thinking, you don't get out of them simply by thinking. And, and maybe, you're think, maybe you hear that and you're like, yeah, but you know, church is just an experience. It just kind of gets you emotionally charged up, you know, like going to a gathering or whatever. I don't want that to impact me. I want to have just a purely intellectual approach to things. What we fail to realize so often is that, like, you are having an experience no matter where you are. If you're at a college where all the professors and students and textbooks think you'd be an idiot to believe in God, that's an experience. You're having an experience that's going to be hard to see past because it'll be the thing right in front of you. So all that to say, you're not experiencelessness whenever you're, like, you're not experiencing nothing whenever you're, even if you're in a room, locked with the door closed, by yourself, isolated, that's an experience. That's going to impact you. So it can't just be sitting around doing thinking to solve yourself, to solve your doubts, to get you out of doubts. Again, thinking is good, but you don't get into doubt simply through thinking, and you don't get out of it simply by thinking. 
And again, we've talked about this for the past two weeks, but prayer is really one of the primary ways, if not the primary way, that you enter into the presence of God. And that you become, maybe maybe in a different way of saying that, was that we really become aware of and engaged in the presence of God. We even see in the psalm, Asaph says, you were always with me, you always had my right hand. So he's there, but whenever we enter into prayer, it's like entering into the sanctuary. It's like entering into the presence of God. And one thing that um, I wanted to, to read out of Hebrews, because I really couldn't get away from reading this, because it touched on so many things we're talking about. <clears throat> and then again, I think we can have a tendency to say, okay, prayer. I'm going to go in my room, close the door, and pray by myself. And that'll solve things. And that might even be where your mind went already. And that's not bad. It's not bad to have a prayer closet. It's not bad to pray by yourself. But when Asaph went to the sanctuary, he would have been around other people. And in Hebrews, in case you think that's just an Old Testament thing, in Hebrews you read the same thing. So I'm going to read this. This is Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 25. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that's a whole other teaching. I'm definitely not going to do that. It's hard enough for me to be up here for one teaching. But anyways, <laughs> just uh, that, that section in Hebrews has so much information in it and so much that it's talking about as far as this new way to enter into God's presence is through Jesus. That's why we can enter into God's presence. But then right after that, it's talking about this full assurance and this boldness. It says, and don't neglect getting together with other believers. He just throws that in there. And it's not just something that he decided sounded good there. It's because that's where we experience God's presence. And it's not because this building or you know, this roof holds in God's presence. It's because of the people. Like church is a gathering. We could gather anywhere. And that would be able to be around other believers and experience God's presence in a way you can't by yourself. So that's all that to say, again, whenever you have doubts, don't run from God, don't isolate. You need to basically work against the negative experiences that are making you question the reality of God, if he's real, if he's good. You need to combat those with positive experiences that show you he really is and help you see reality as it really is. So when you have doubts, run to the people and the places and the practices that help you experience God. I'm actually going to go ahead and uh, call up the worship theme. We're going to, we're going to close down here. Um, so at the close of this psalm, uh, we get to see really why Asaph and why any of us um, have hope whenever we deal with doubts, that, that even if we feel like we're slipping, that we won't fall, where that hope actually rests. And uh, I'm going to read uh, Psalm 73. This is verses 23 through 26. This is what Asaph says as he's really uh, he's practicing remembering prayer, if you remember that from a couple weeks ago. He says he's remembering who God really is and what he's done. He says, In verse 23, Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. So when we read that, that that God is the strength of my heart, that word strength literally means rock. 
And again, this is written in a way that's like a song. It's a prayer. It's like poetry. So he's saying that in the path of life, whenever we step in places that are like a slippery rock or like loose gravel, the reason that we have hope that we won't fall is because God is the rock. He's the foundation. He's where security, sure footing, he's the only place that's found. And if your faith is in Jesus, you know, the rock of our salvation, then even your doubt can't render what he's done void. And there's actually, um, there's an an incident in Mark 9 uh, that's one of my other favorite examples of God, of Jesus interacting with a doubter. So in Mark 9, there's this father who comes to Jesus and he wants to see his son healed. And, And Jesus says, all things are possible for those who believe. And the dad's response to Jesus is, I think, a prayer that if you wanted to, you could pray word for word. You could copy this. You could say this every day of your life. What the father responded to Jesus was, I do believe, help my unbelief. So what he's saying is, I do believe, but I've got all these doubts. He's saying, I do believe, but I don't really believe good enough. And what's amazing is that Jesus didn't just look at him and say, okay, well, when you believe good enough, then I'll heal your son. No, what Jesus did was right then, he healed his son. And the man didn't even think that his faith was good enough. <laughs> and But that didn't stop Jesus. And I think that's the point, is because your hope and my hope is not in like the intensity or the strength or the clarity of our faith. It's in the object of our faith. And, and if Jesus is the object of your faith, then you're secure. If Jesus isn't the object of your faith, you will never be secure. But if he is the object of your faith, if you make him the object of your faith, you're secure. Your doubt cannot and will not be able to end what he's done or make what he's done void. Because if your faith is in Jesus' death and resurrection, then justice has already been served on your behalf. And you have a refuge in him that nothing can destroy, nothing can rip you out of, not even your own doubt. So it's because of what God has done, it's because of who God is, that we can be honest about our doubts to one another and to him. It's because of what God has done that we're able to compare what we believe with any other belief system without fear. And it's because of what God has done in Jesus' death on the cross that we are able to experience his presence without having to be terrified by it. So just to leave you with this, God is in fact good. And he does actually care about you. So you can actually take your doubts to him. Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we need to experience you more than I think we ever really realize. Um, and I just pray that, that today and uh, moving forward, that in my own life and in our life as a church, that we would experience you, that we would use our minds, that we would reason, but that we wouldn't that we wouldn't run from the truth or that we wouldn't hide from our, our doubts or our questions, but that we'd be, have the confidence to face them because we know that, that the reality is you're there and you're good and you're listening right now. And God, I just pray that in, even in this last song that we would just be able to know and feel and experience that you're here and that you're with us and that you're good. And I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.